0: mm
1: Welcome to the Pastor's Cut podcast for the week of December 17th, 2023, and this will be the last podcast for the year. We are rounding out the year right now. So we, we made it through another year, guys. Wow! We did it, and we're still on the air. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> we kept this going, it's kind of
2: like when people self publish their own yeah. books. <laughs> <laughs> look what I did! <laughs> look what
1: I did! Oh yeah, great! Yeah, we're we're putting this stuff out. We've we've decided that we're still on the air. Yeah. So, hey, and we were just bantering. So we're gonna do a couple things. We're gonna we're gonna banter for a while as we often do. Then we're gonna get down to business because there's some things we need to tell everybody. And then we'll go to the Bible. How do you like that? Banter, business, Bible. Mm, priorities wow. in
2: order. Maybe. I, look
1: at that! You know, you know, you've been a pastor a long time when you alliterate and you're not even really trying to. So, and
2: in three points,
1: I know three points. There it is. So, um, we were just talking before about the most famous people we've ever met. Um, so,
0: so Dave, you had a really good one. So, when I was four years old, I was obsessed with Knight Rider. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Night <laughs> I know, I know. You can laugh all you want. My dad, my dad managed a drugstore, and he even he had this display car that. that was a kit car that you could pedal and, and, and drive around the yard. So I got that when that display was done with. Mm. Uh, my dad took me when I was four years old to a PIR race in Phoenix. And we left the race a little early as we were leaving. David Hasselhoff was walking in the parking lot. <laughs> the Hoff. The Hoff himself. <clears throat> my four-year-old mindset, I thought, hey, where's the car? You drove the car, right? <laughs> uh, and of course, he didn't have it. He was very gracious as uh, trying to talk to a four-year-old, trying to say, I'm really just an actor it's not really me and he gave me a card he signed it and i remember having a good conversation with him as much as a 4-year-old can have a conversation with an actor
1: historic i mean he was in Knight rider he's in baywatch and then he sang as the wall <laughs> came down in berlin i mean that's a uh, man who's been around so so marissa what about you okay
2: well i was just thinking of um i was thinking of different things, but your interaction reminded me of, <laughs> um, <Uh-oh. laughs> I was taking a behind the scene tour in Disney world when I was like in middle school. And, uh, I think it was like nineties, early nineties and Hulk Hogan had a short lived oh program on the <laughs> Disney channel, um, oh, wow. called thunder and paradise. I think it involved jet boats. I'm not sure. I wasn't a big fan, but, um, we met him and he had a Dodge Viper that said Hulk on the back. Very cool. And uh, and the tour guide mm-hmm. we were with said, can can the children say hi to you? Do you like children? And he was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I met Hulk Hogan. I was going to say N.T. Wright was a big one for me. Okay. A few years ago, now I met N.T. Wright, cool. and that was awesome. Um,
1: I think he's one of the greatest living theologians yes, of our Yes. I was so mm-hmm. excited. I
2: went to Duke Divinity um, when my sister was there to hear him um, so
1: if yeah. you had to spend an hour with either Hulk Hogan or NT Wright, we'll, who would you we'll choose? take NT Wright. Okay, if you're sure,
2: I am sure. Okay, yes, <laughs> Br-
1: Brad. Something tells me you have many musical brushes with fame. Uh, yeah, I, I have several, but but it's not because of anything I've done, other than I was just in the right place at the right time. So so who's your favorite? Um, I really enjoyed hanging out with Wynton Marsalis. That Very was a, cool. that was a hoot. I mean, Very cool. He was someone that I still admire. And as, as a jazz person, he was, and still is, the representative, arguably, of that genre of music. And it does a very good job at it. So anyway, uh, he and George Strait were my two biggies. By that. Fantastic. Uh, you know, I have to tell you, all my exes do live in Texas. I, that really ah. is, that song's about me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I hope Paula's not listening to this. So, so, Darren, who was your celebrity?
1: Don, I met Don Henley. So, um, years ago, Paula and I went to a concert in, in uh, actually Fort Worth and uh, saw uh, the Eagles in concert, and I had a chance to meet Don Henley uh, backstage beforehand, just, just briefly. And uh, I, I, I just go, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and, and my wife and I first dated and danced to your songs. She, he goes, you're a pastor, and you dance. Hmm, that's something. So that was my one interaction with with fame. So it was very cool. They <laughs> planted
2: I, that seed.
1: Just planted that seed. That's right.
0: I did forget to mention that
1: I met Diana Krall, and she touched my right leg. Oh, she has got one of the most beautiful voices. She leaned over and said, please pass the ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. It is, it's a moment you'll never. She's telling I,
2: that story too somewhere.
1: Uh, uh, yeah. She tried chicken fried steak for the first time. I'm just saying. Okay. You still have that little bottle of ketchup that you passed uh, here?
0: No, I didn't yeah. have the. I was too shaken to think yeah. about it.
1: I I'd also met. I met Jay Ipacker once, who's a great theologian, yeah. kind of the NT right mm. vein. And um, I was waiting to hear him speak in a in a church, and he asked me where the bathroom was. So nice. a, actually, he asked me he asked me where the rector's office was, and I thought he was asking for the bathroom. <laughs> because, <laughs> Because uh, so you led him astray. I was still a young oh theologian. I had goodness. no idea what a rector was. <laughs> All right. So um, now, now let's get down to business. Since this is our last podcast, I want to just preview some things coming up, uh, a.k.a. announcements that we're going to make feel not like announcements. Very important that you know Christmas Eve is going to look different this year because we um, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. So we sat as a staff and say, "What would serve our people the best?" We're going to do one morning service, ten a.m. carols and com- uh, excuse me, carols and communion. That's right. Uh, no community groups that morning, mm-hmm. uh, and so that will be ten a.m. And then at three and five, we're going to do our traditional Christmas Eve candlelight services. I believe the three o'clock has childcare, the five o'clock does not. And so this service has become a very important part of many people's family mm-hmm. tradition. So I would encourage you. This is me as a pastor hit two of three of those, two out of three of those <laughs> services, and we come to the carols and communion. That'll be a very simple time of worship and adoration, and our Christmas Eve will be our traditional service. Then going into the new year, 2024, we are going to spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly on Wednesday nights, they talk about what we'll be doing and when that'll start.
0: So starting January 10th uh, for the the first five weeks, the first five Wednesday nights, I guess technically it's the second Wednesday starting, but starting January 10th, we are going to dive into the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. While while Darren on Sunday mornings is going to walk through the entire Sermon on the Mount, Wednesday nights, we're going to take a, a deep dive at, at the Beatitudes. What are the characteristics that, that Jesus really wanted to call out and develop in his disciples? And what does that look like for us to, to practically, tangibly live that out? So over the first five weeks, from midweek at first, we'll, we'll have one large class. we invite everybody to be a part of it so we can walk through what are those Beatitudes and what do they tangibly look like to be lived out in our lives.
1: Okay, so that will take us up. That, that'll go through January 10th, from January 10th to February 7th. Then on February fourteenth, I can't believe we're going to start talking about Easter already. But that, that's <laughs> it's like <Wednesday>.
2: seeing <laughs> seeing the incaps caps at Target right it, after Christmas for yeah. Easter candy. I was like, No, please! Yeah,
1: it, it's <laughs> so, July.
0: It's it's the Christmas trees that are going up in July. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I've already seen stuff for Saint Patrick's Day. Has anybody else seen that in the stores? No, that's rude. It, wow. It's just it's just we just piling on top of one another. So, but February fourteenth uh, begins the season of Lent, which runs toward Easter. So we'll do an Ash Wednesday service that night. But also beginning that night is what I want Marissa to talk about. February 14th, that's an easy date to remember, but we're starting something that night that's very important.
2: So every year we do a cycle of grief share here at First Baptist, and it's just for people who, you know, when you're grieving someone um, that was very close to you, people say, well-meaning but awful things. Um, and, uh, (laughs) um, grief share is a weekly gathering of people who have all experienced loss, um, that just helping each other go through, um, the steps towards healing, the steps towards, um, beginning your new normal. It's a 13 week cycle. So it does begin February 14th and it'll be weekly for 13 weeks, beginning February 14th from six to eight on Wednesday nights. So if you have, um, lost a loved one, if you need help, um, if you feel stuck in grief, for you just need a refresher on how to um, take steps to heal, um, join us on Wednesday nights. The
1: reason I'm mentioning it here is, is I, I've spoken with several people lately who have lost loved ones, and they feel it most keenly yes. around the holidays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, by the way, um, if, if you know somebody in grief and you don't know what to say, one of the best things to say is, I don't know what to say, mm-hmm. but I love you. I yeah. mean, that's just just simple. And, and people know we don't know what to say. We've all been in that situation. Yeah. What What's what's the worst thing you've heard somebody say to somebody grieving?
2: Oh, Lord. There's so many. (laughs) 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 Or give
1: give us another good alternative. What's something good to say? I
2: I think just to be present and to listen. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful what you said, just to let them know that you're there and that you love them, to give people grace and and, um, space to grieve as they feel.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and people feel loss and loneliness and just say, I love you. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's jump in now to the Bible. Uh, for this week, we are looking at the Magi and their visit to Jesus. Um, I'm surprised nobody did the Jesus juke. Who's, who's the most famous person you ever met? Well, I've, Jesus. Met, I've met Jesus. Yeah, okay. But for the Magi, <laughs> that's kind of their, their thing here. Uh, so, Marissa, why don't you read? And what, what we're going to do, we're going to talk through the text. Mm-hmm. And then I do want to spend a little time, uh, because the characteristic that I want us to look at today for the Magi is curiosity. We were a spiritually curious bunch. Uh, By the way, we don't know if there are three or 30 magi. We don't know Mm -hmm. how many. We know they are plural. We often think there are three because there are three gifts, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But they were curious. And then from that curiosity, I want to talk through the text, then talk about um, a phenomenon we see happening in our own world today. So, Marissa, why don't you read, uh, please, Matthew 2, uh, 1 through 12.
2: All right. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route.
1: Oh, great song by James Taylor, Home by Another Way. If you've, mm-hmm. never, if you've never heard that song, you need to listen to it. Uh, so um, let, let me just, let's me let walk through the text here just a bit. We'll take turns at, at walking through. So, so Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the, in the time of the arrival based on the slaughter of the innocents. By the way, when Mary and Joseph had Jesus, they didn't return back to Nazareth. They stayed put in Bethlehem. And for this reason, that the Magi would know to look for him there. And um, probably two, two and a half years passes. Uh, so the Magi were not there at the nativity scene. It's okay to keep them there on the one on display in your home, but, but they didn't arrive mm-hmm. until about two years after the fact. And what they do is very reasonable. They're looking for a king. They're stargazers. They're from Babylon. Uh, The word magi, you can see it in the word magic. They were stargazers and astrologers, and they believed that the movements of the heavens were connected to the destinies of men. From their standpoint, though, they saw something that indicated the birth of a king in Israel, and they make their way down, and where do you look for a king but in the capital city? Mm -hmm. So they went to Jerusalem. There they met Herod, and boy, did they step into a political mess. Mm. Herod was uh, an unstable individual. Let's put it that way. We'll put it nicely. Uh, he, he had some great qualities early in his reign. He uh, was quite the organizer and managed to rebuild a lot of uh, the Holy Land, including uh, the temple. But he was unstable paranoid. Uh, if a man kills his own sons to preserve his power, you know something has gone mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, um, But Herod knows how to play the game. He said, well, let's find this new king. It's not, not been in my household and so they call in the religious experts um, to talk about where the king would be born. For some reason, I feel Marissa, I should stop here. Uh, any Ooh. any comments on the on the religious authorities and what they did and what they don't do? And if I'm catching you off guard, I'll just keep going.
2: <laughs> you can keep going. You, you always have
1: you always have a comment about oh the religious leaders were thinking this or doing mm. this or here's so what they we didn't do. They, oh.
0: The religious leaders they, they did not. Probably in this moment, they they weren't aware of Herod's duplicity. Herod had done a lot of programs to appeal to them and appease them. They're probably in the first century world. There there was an anticipation of a Messiah, of a king being born. And so everyone was aware of that, including Herod. But Herod didn't know where. He wasn't aware of that part of the prophecy. And so as he was looking, he went to the one source that he could look to with these people that he'd built up. And they had sort of a, a compromised power where he had put... The, the Sanhedrin in place, he'd put these Jewish leaders in place and given them mm-hmm. authority. They were allowed to be in authority because he was there, and because he was giving them that authority. So so there was this sense of, oh, we've got to please him, he asked this question, okay, we've got sure. to help him out a little bit. Yeah. And, and then they told him, well, this is what the prophecies say. They probably weren't aware that he was going to kill the Messiah. They, they just thought, oh, he just wants to know the answer to this theological question. It's simple.
2: Well, and then also, I mean, if you're serving a king who is capable of infanticide, uh, who is capable of imprisoning and killing his own wife, who is capable of killing anyone, you know, he crucified people. Um, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him, is verse 3. And you just think, if, if the king is disturbed, which you already know, he's disturbed in his mind, he's disturbed in his spirit, what can <laughs> mm-hmm. he do to us? And we see that in the, the slaughtering of the innocents. We see that time and again in history with Herod. So when, when he is disturbed, there's a great fear amongst those who are close to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, these leaders um, knew exactly what kind of person he was and what he was capable of. Um, so there, there was a great disturbance, and then maybe not because of Jesus, but because the king was disturbed. So
1: why, did, why weren't the leaders, and we're going to talk about the, the value of curiosity, the Magi were curious individuals, and that's what what brought them to Bethlehem. But it strikes me here, the religious leaders, they answer the question, And then, okay, we check the box. We're, you know, we'll go back and do our business. And there seems to be no follow up there. You Mm -hmm. would think, and maybe there was more there, but why would they not pursue this? Okay, they've they've heard this rumor that a king's born. They probably heard it from Herod's court, but they do nothing with it. Mm -hmm. Why not?
2: I think it's it's just that fear. I think uh, we'll talk about this later on, but. the, the fear seems to almost be an opposite of curiosity, and it's very powerful. Um, so they might have been curious, but but they had an immediate need to preserve their own life and their own skin at that moment.
1: Right. So um, Herod called the Magi in, and he wanted to know the exact time. When, when did this journey start for you? Because that would help him calculate, Herod, it would help him calculate how old this new king would be at this point in time. And this would of course come to play into the slaughter of the innocents. Uh, The Magi seem to be oblivious. They're foreigners, they probably don't know the political landscape, they don't know Herod is unstable, he sure is charismatic and presenting himself well. But God warns the Magi in a dream, once they have found the Christ and they worship him, don't go back to Herod and report, return home by another way. And so they escape back to their own country And I wonder if Herod sent troops to try to find the Magi, but probably by the time he realized they were missing, they were already beyond his borders, Mm -hmm. and and they were safe. And there's a sense of bravery. Marissa, I love what you said about fear being the opposite of curiosity because it's their courage that permitted them to be curious. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do want to make one little note here that I'm going to open it up for you guys to talk about anything in the text you find interesting. It says, They opened their treasures in verse 11. And presented him with gifts of gold. I, I love the Greek word there. It's the Greek word thesaurus, mm. from where we get our English word thesaurus. Mm. So a thesaurus is a is a is a treasury of words, mm. right? I'm a word nerd. <laughs> hey, great book um, that I just started reading the other day. If if you're a word nerd, this has nothing to do with the Bible but has everything to do with me, and that's why we're, we're talking here today. It's, it's, kind of, <laughs> uh, it's called The Dictionary People by Sarah Ogilvy, and it's about all the people who contributed to the Oxford English Dictionary, all these word nerds around England. Mm. So, yeah. that's, so that's me. I'm a word nerd. All right, so what stands out to the text for you guys?
2: Well, you know, we've talked about in Luke how um, the gospel writer crafted his narration around um, the idea that the Messiah was for everyone. For the people on the margins and the people on the outskirts. Well, Matthew was trying to show the kingship of Christ. And so, from the very beginning, his narration doesn't go to the shepherds, but it goes to the Magi. And just like you said, they were astronomers and that kind of, you know, slash, <laughs> slash yeah. astronomers at that time. Um, but they were looking for a king. And the Magi were kingmakers in Persia. Um, they were the ones who, um, you know, you could not rule in Persia without being legitimized by the Magi. So in a way, this is a way for for Matthew to show that the entire world recognized the kingship of Jesus. Um, The gold that you mentioned, um, you know, that shows his kingship, it shows his royalty, um, the king of the Jews, and ultimately the king of kings and lord of lords. Um, The frankincense was an incense that was connected to priesthood and the temple, and um, and you, you wonder like how much did the Magi understand right. the symbolism and how much of that was divinely you know uh, divinely held but um, it was foreshadowing that Jesus would be both sacrifice and high priest. Um, myrrh had this much more sobering symbolism of being something that uh, perfumed bodies as they were being buried. So Jesus's own body would be wrapped in linen and myrrh um, later on in John 19. And just that they were willing to carry these precious gifts over 700 miles. We've learned through like um, the, the Good Samaritan story. Um, about highway robbery at that time and yeah. how dangerous it was to travel. And they were so compelled, so curious, so uh, driven to find the king that um, that they were willing to go all that distance with those precious gifts to show the kingship of Jesus. And the symbolic
1: value is there, but also the practical value of, uh, you know, and I mentioned this not long ago, that you know, as Mary and Joseph needed to finance their trip, their escape to Egypt, it was a very practical way that God had provided for them. Yes, yeah. Dave, what stands out for you? So
0: a couple of things stand out. On on, on a very surface level, I, I was struck this time as I was studying the passage how much politics Matthew weaves into the story and into the conversation. Herod was had no fear of, of anything coming from the West, of any, any political pressure coming from Rome, because Rome had appointed him as, as the governor, as the leader of that region. He was intentional in investing in the Jewish people and in raising up leaders that were basically his puppets mm-hmm. so that he could control them. He was afraid of his own children. He was also afraid of people coming from the East to come in. And so when this entourage, and it, it literally was was these however many wise men there were plus an entourage of other people that would come with him, bringing all this stuff from 700, 800, 900 miles, whatever the distance was Mm -hmm. from Babylon to Jerusalem, quite the trek, he starts freaking out, thinking, my goodness, what's going on? Even the way he constructed the city and the way he fortified the city, he built walls in the eastern side to prevent people from coming from the east to attack him. So when he saw that, there's this political move that's at play, and then they come to anoint the king, ultimately to to pave the way to, to anoint this prophesied king that that people throughout antiquity have said there's going to be a new king that's rising in jerusalem in israel in judea Mm -hmm. that will be a leader and so he was petrified of that so i find that fascinating just the the historian in me (laughs) um i also diving deeper and, and processing a little bit more the discipleship side of me says there's something that the magi understood about discerning the voice of god and leaning in and being curious that that They cultivated a hunger to listen and discern whatever God was saying, whether it was from the sky, whether it was from dreams, or or something else. They were attentive to what God was doing. They were intentional as well in in following, not just simply listening, but taking that next step and following the promptings that they received. And that's something that I think we can learn, that, that we can be very intentional in putting our ears up to discern the sense of the Spirit and then be willing to follow the Spirit wherever He leads us.
1: Yeah, that's right, so to Jewish readers, and Matthew was written to a primarily Jewish audience, uh, this would be somewhat offensive to include the Magi right. in this, you know, who, mm-hmm. who are these astronomers and astrologers that, mm-hmm. that you've welcomed into your gospel story? Well, Matthew tells it because it's true, uh, and that's one of our, our ways of validating it, you know, a writer wouldn't make up a story like this right. if he's trying to appeal to a Jewish audience. But the other uh, teaching point here is, at least they were paying attention, <laughs> where Herod was too concerned about preserving his power, uh, the religious leaders were too concerned about preserving their lives, and here's people who are, are being attentive and curious about the Lord. Right. So, yeah. uh, oh, sorry, Well, Mason. I was just
2: going to say, it's exactly right. I mean, the, the early Christians, uh, especially those that were Jewish believers, would have seen these uh, magi as fools, as, as people who had missed um, the true point of of, of the world, um, and yet this is our story um, of everyone in the uh, nativity narrative you know this is where Gentiles were grafted into the story right. of God and this is the place where the Messiah was manifested to the Gentile population. so so um, you know this is what what God was up to was bringing this Messiah not just to Bethlehem, not just to Jerusalem, but to the east to the entire world.
1: so so the the um value, the principle, the priority I'm going to put on this, the characteristic, that's the word I'm looking for, is uh, that they, these were just curious individuals. And I think uh, if we're not careful as Christ followers, even over the long haul, we tend to lose our curiosity about Jesus. When we mm-hmm. hear the gospel, yeah, I know that, and hear a Bible passage, yeah, I've, I've read that before, and we lose our edge, we lose our curiosity. And the way I'd like to apply this, and I don't know that I'll go there in the message, I, I may, but there is a phenomenon in our own time uh, called faith deconstruction where people, followers of Jesus, they, they lose their edge, they lose their curiosity, and they decide to, to start to deconstruct their faith. Now, uh, there, there's there's a level at this in which this is healthy. I think there becomes a moment in time where, especially if you've grown up in the church, you say, my faith cannot be my parents' faith anymore. Mm-hmm. I need to figure out what I believe. But deconstruction has taken on, uh, or rather, Uh, it's become popular in our culture to start to dismantle your faith but then you put nothing in its place. Uh, One person said any donkey can kick down a barn but it takes a carpenter to build one and it's it's easy to deconstruct your faith it's it's a lot harder to piece together what is it I believe and what is it that I hold firm no matter what. So I would like us to talk about that phenomenon just a bit and how uh, we may have some people that are in the process of deconstructing their faith or have deconstructed their faith and have built nothing back in its place. Mm-hmm. So I would like to, to talk to that just a bit. By the way, some of it the church has brought on itself. Some people have given up on Christianity or have stopped attending church. Uh, as our friend Russell Moore says, it's not that they don't believe it anymore. It's like the church doesn't believe what it says it believes. Right. And so there's that age-old you know idea of there's hypocrites in the church. Well, well yeah, there are. There are hypocrites everywhere. Um, but the focus shouldn't be on the hypocrites. It should be, who is God and who has he called me to be? So let, let's reflect on that just a bit. Marissa, I see you scrolling to your, your document over there, so I'll, I'll let you go first.
2: Yeah, so um, there's a, it's kind of a wider umbrella term, deconstruction. Mm-hmm. So there's um, some people who disc- deconstruct, and that means that they've lost their faith altogether. And that they've become atheists or agnostics or 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 people that are um, have a, kind of an intense desire to kind of burn down the institution that hurt them, um, and then there's people who deconstruct, and that means that they they still believe in Jesus, but uh, they're struggling with how um, church as an institution has failed them, or they have um, kind of come to the epiphany, um, which this is nice. yeah, eh, um, that the faith they've been given has been shallow. You mentioned that it's part of the process of making your faith your own as opposed to just the faith of your of your parents or the faith of your community so they either respond with this curious desire to dig deeper to get to know god on a more intimate authentic level or they come to believe that the shallow faith that they were given is all that there is and it's not worth continuing um and uh, if if you know it's not continuing to or it's not worthwhile to continue in a pursuit that you've found to be hollow Um, so, uh, you know, we thirst for God, um, and we thirst for relationship and something real and divine. And, and some of us have been led to, um, a dry Creek bed rather than living water. Um, so it's the curiosity and awe and wonder that we hold onto that, um, that, that compels us to dig a new well, that compels us to play in new streams, um, to get to know um, to God and to hold on to our faith. So there's there's a lot of bad stereotypes around deconstructionists, and I I feel like that comes from you know pastors and thought leaders who have lost their faith but really want to yeah. keep hold of their authority yeah. and want to keep hold of their platform and their audience because they've become kind of addicted to that, and so that only leads to secularized self righteousness. So we see these people who want eyes still to be on them, but they don't have a gospel message anymore. And so their ministry becomes this deconstruction of the church entirely, of faith entirely, of God entirely. And those are the, the loudest voices, but the majority of people who are deconstructing are people who are seeking after an authentic relationship with God, who are breaking down barriers that people have built up between them and God, and who are, are uh, experiencing real pain and real victimization because of church-institutionalized violence. So um, so it, it requires a lot of grace and generosity when you use that term. That's
1: right, and, and there are a lot of reasons, and I, I'm going to point out an article that I've, I've referenced many times before. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, his article on deconstructing, excuse me, reconstructing faith, uh, colon, Christianity in a New World, uh, released several years ago, and, and he does a really good job saying, what are, what are the occasions— Uh, for deconstruction, but also reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really healthy that if you you are going through a time, and I think everyone does. In fact, Francis Schaeffer, one of the uh, best voices of the 20th century Christianity, he's in my intellectual honesty says, I need to take some of this apart. But as you're deconstructing, it's for the purpose of reconstructing Mm -hmm. faith, not Mm -hmm. just tearing it down, Mm -hmm. not just a burn-it-all-down mentality. But, you know, for children who grow up in Christian homes, there's gonna come a time where they're gonna say, I need to say, is this what I really believe? Mm-hmm. Um, another occasion for Reconstruction when you see suffering and injustice, uh, particularly in the church. I mean, when, when you see a lot of the pastoral scandals of, of recent years have caused a lot of people to deconstruct their faith, um, but, but it's gotta be, we've gotta get our eyes off how other people who call themselves Christians are behaving and say, is God real? Uh, so there's that delusionment with Christian leaders Uh, Keller also mentions um, learning the distinction between secondary and primary beliefs. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in a church, a secondary belief becomes the focus of the main thing. Like, think about the second coming, Mm -hmm. you know, and yet something is drilled into you. And when you find out that that's not true, what you've been taught, or Mm -hmm. there are other ideas, then you go, well, well, if that secondary thing was not true, what about the primary things that might not be true either? And then uh, I, I think one of the biggest... Uh, contributors to um, deconstruction is when when Christians are brought up in this faith bubble, uh, and they have no immunities on how to handle a larger world. So there's plenty of reasons for people to deconstruct. Mm-hmm. Going into it though, it's got to be I'm going to start questioning some things, but it's the idea of what kind of life am I going to build after this? Mm-hmm. So so Dave, I've I've not let you in on the conversation. Oh
0: no yet. no, it's it's okay. So yes there. I have compassion for people who, who are approaching this and are looking for ways to to make their faith make sense to them in light of their experience, in light of what, what they have encountered that doesn't feel genuine, it doesn't seem to be one and the same with what they read in, in the Bible and in the text. As I look at them and I, so I have conversations with people who are in the process of deconstructing their faith and are trying to rebuild something, but they haven't found anything yet, I invite them, go back, historically, who is Jesus? What did mm-hmm. Jesus really do? It starts there. It doesn't end there, but, but if Jesus really was who he said he was, if Jesus really was a historical, literal person, that, that's a starting point to, to find a basis to say, hey, th- this really can be real. From there, I just, I want to create a dialogue to help people know and experience the real God. And build a faith that's based on an encounter with God, as opposed to build a faith that's based on a set of presuppositions that we memorize. Because we're good in church in, in yeah. giving people a list of you memorize these scriptures, you 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 ha- pull out your your card and make sure you're reading your Bible every day. Mm-hmm. That'll keep the devil away. You make sure you <laughs> um, you go to church every Sunday so you can get that perfect attendance for Sunday school. Make sure that you. You even have one gospel conversation a week, so so, whew, you're in good shape. Now we've we created Pharisees instead of really creating an authentic encounter mm-hmm. with the living God. And the solution, I think, to this begins with just inviting people to experience the living God and walk with Him,
1: mm-hmm. and and to. You know, we would do this with anybody. We're, we're not going to base our opinion of somebody based on what we've heard, but as we get to know them, yes. you know, I base my opinion on Dave McPherson because I know Dave McPherson. You're an honorable man. You're a good man. You love your wife. You know, whatever. And I, Dave, I hear trash talked about you all the time. Whatever else Shoot. people say. Wow, <laughs> boy. I, I, uh, Untrue. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I, yeah. I, I have the freedom to say that because you know I'm kidding. right? But it's... Um, <laughs> It's one of. I want to base my belief. Looking straight at you, don't base your opinion of God based on what you've seen other people do. You've mm-hmm. got to take God for who He is, and the best place to find Him is not by looking at other Christians, good or bad. It's looking at Christ. Mm-hmm. Look at Him. And, yes. Yeah. Marissa, what are you? What are you thinking over there? The wheels are turning.
2: One of the other things that leads to um, a deconstruction of, of faith, um, both the positive and the negative aspects of that, is the fear of asking questions. And that um, began with, um, you know, our parents and our faith leaders um, being afraid of our questions. So mm. from the very beginning of our childhoods, we've been told what's a right question to ask and what's a wrong question. Man, I
1: love hard questions. Yeah, so. mm-hmm. yeah.
2: And so does God. You know, we belong to a faith tradition that asks us to have faith like a like a child. And that doesn't mean to have a shallow faith or a naive faith, but what's the one thing that your kids do more than anything? It's ask why. And so God relishes our questions. He loves wrestling with us. You know, you you can go back to the history of the people of Israel, and the name Israel means wrestling with God. So he values not our doubts, but our wrestling, our desire to get to know him better and to grip onto him harder and, and to love him more completely. You know, we need to ask questions. He's created our mind to seek knowledge. And to uh, you know, designed us with a desire to know how the world works. He's designed us to be filled with wonder and awe at His creation and His divinity. And we must uh, try to know the truth about God as fully as He allows us to. Um, There's uh, the the book that you recommended about the Apostles' Creed um, by uh, Cranfield wrote. Uh, in that book that um, we must try to know the truth about God as fully as he allows us to learn ever more and more about his character, his deeds, his ways, and his will, and to understand everything around us in light of his truth. Proper worship includes learning more about God. So when you fall in love deeply with someone, um, if you don't get to know them, if you don't get to know their heart and their mind, then all it is is infatuation. And that's what is lost in deconstruction, is that infatuation. Yeah. What is left behind, if, if done with wonder and awe, and within a supportive faith community that celebrates curiosity, is that you fall deeper in love with God.
1: So my, my encouragement, and it will be the way we pray after this uh, sermon, uh, And I'm, I'm matching my midweek updates with that one characteristic, and so I'll encourage us that next week to pray about curiosity. Um, is to get curious about God again. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I I mentioned Francis Schaeffer earlier, but he he talks about one of the reasons he kind of went through this deconstruction as he he heard these words of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, humility, self-control. He didn't see those things evident in the lives of his colleagues, but he also noticed that they were lacking in his own life as well. And so he said, you know, I've got to decide do I really believe this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in becoming curious about God and falling in love with him. That's where that happens. Yeah. So, you know, we can be like the religious leaders who check the boxes and go about their day. We can by the, be about the political leaders and just making sure I preserve my power as long as I can. Or we can be like the magi, which seems to be the patron saints of curiosity mm-hmm. uh, in our own lives. Mm-hmm. All right. Any last words? Marissa, you were talking trash about Dave before we went on the air. Anything I you sure want to I did. It
2: wasn't. What do uh, you, muster?
1: Oh, my <laughs> goodness.
0: It's pick on even, Dave day. Okay, Brad, what it do you is, got? It is pick on... I'm, I'm like, I like Dave. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we got to pick on one of you at all times. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. right. <laughs> um, okay, so this is our last recording. Any last words for 2023? This is our last one for for this year. Anything you just dying to say?
0: Uh, what was the, the the most famous person? He used to say, "Stay thirsty." You know those silly oh, commercials. Stay,
2: th- stay thirsty, my friends. <laughs> stay curious,
0: my friends. <laughs> nice. Who who said stay thirsty? Is that the the most interesting world, man in
2: so, the world? <laughs>
1: okay, so we're ending the year on a beer commercial. I love this church so much.
2: <laughs> I would say loving God with curiosity is essential to loving God properly. Say that again. Loving God with curiosity is essential to loving God properly. Very good. Stay well, curious, my friends.
1: <laughs> do not invite God into your life. Allow yourself to accept his invitation into his. Ooh. There you go. I like we, that. We don't invite Christ into our life, he invites us into his life. Mm-hmm. Make
0: me a better person. No. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> that's not it.
1: Well, well, friends, that's the wisdom we have around the table. That's it. That's all we got. So (laughs) I hope you you have a great end of this year. We'll be back in 2024 as we uh, start our podcast through the Message on the Mount. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And may God grant you peace. And stay thirsty, my friends. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Amen.